As we look at John chapter 16, we're going to finish the chapter today. I want to read verses 25 through 33, and then we'll pray, and we will get into the message. Let's look at John chapter 16, starting in verse 25. Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day, you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I am from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, look, now you are speaking plainly, not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Verse 31, Jesus responded to them, Do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at your words, important, sustaining, life-giving words that you spoke uh, to your disciples whom you gathered there on that evening before going to the cross, these final parting words, these words that you wanted to leave them with before your death. God, as we look at those same words preserved over the centuries, written down for us to read and to reflect on today, Jesus, would you do the miraculous in our hearts? Speak life to us. Speak truth to us. Help us to understand the many reasons for your coming to earth. Help us to understand what we sometimes so casually celebrate here at Christmas time the birth of the Savior into the world. Lord, give us insight as we look at your word today. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, hopefully you received a handout on the way and I encourage you to get that out. It's a helpful way to follow along as we look at this passage together. Um, you know, Jesus came to the earth for obviously very specific reasons. What, what we celebrate at this time of year, the birth of Christ, would have, um, would have implications for human history like no other event. There, there, there is no other birth amongst humanity that even begins to parallel the birth of Jesus Christ. But why did he do this? Why did Jesus come? Why did God see it necessary to send into the world his son? Why did, why did Jesus, the son, willingly agree with the father that it was best that he come, that he be born as a baby, and that he grow up in, in the fragile state of human existence? And what? What was his end goal in coming to the earth? Well, we want to begin to explore that today. We're also going to, this will also carry over 
into Friday evening when we get together to celebrate uh, on Christmas Eve. Um, where we're at in, in, the, in the text here in John's gospel is he's finishing up what's often called the upper room discourse. That just, just a way of, of reminding us that Jesus was gathered together with his disciples on the night before he goes to the cross. On the night that, that G- Judas has gone out from them to betray him. On the night when, when, by the time the sun comes up the next morning, Jesus will no longer be a free man. He will be arrested and soon to be crucified. So he's gathered his disciples for these parting words. We've talked about this a little bit. He's sort of passing the baton. He's letting them know that he's leaving, but the work needs to continue. That the ministry that he has begun with his earthly ministry, he will continue to do through them as he sends the Holy Spirit, and that they are to carry out this work. And what we're doing here is we're actually concluding... Jesus' instructions to his disciples here with the end of chapter 16. By, by the time we get to chapter 17, which will begin Friday night, Jesus is going to transition, and the entire chapter of chapter 17 is Jesus praying. And he's going to pray in three, with, with three different things in mind. He's going to begin with praying for himself, which we'll look, for, look at on Friday night. He's then going to pray for his immediate disciples, for those 11 that are left in the room with him. And, and perhaps even beyond that, his other followers. And then he's going to pray for all believers at all times, meaning us. And so these, the, these words that we're looking at today are, are in a sense, Jesus' final instructions. These are his parting words. So let's look at what they reveal to us today about why Jesus came. The first thing you see on your handout is this. Jesus came to reveal truth. He came to reveal truth. What, is, what are the implications of that, though? Is that good news? Is that bad news? How do we know it's true? These are all things that perhaps come to mind. Let's look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 25, I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. His disciples said, look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. And by this, we believe that you came from God. See, Jesus has been speaking to them sort of in veiled language. He's he's said things that they didn't understand all throughout these last couple of chapters. Jesus will say something and his disciples will usually respond with a question. And their question isn't like, hey, Jesus, that makes sense. Tell us more. Their questions are normally like, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? We don't understand anything you're saying. We don't know what to think about this. And now they say, now you're speaking plainly. Now we understand, and now we believe that you know everything. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Well, that is why Jesus came. He came to reveal the truth, but he came to reveal truth in a world where truth is deemed to be relative where people don't necessarily agree that there's one truth, that there's this idea of absolute truth. 
And I'm speaking of Jesus's generation. He, he, he comes into a world. He, in fact, he comes in, into a specific place, you know, in Jerusalem and in, in the land of Israel at that time, which was occupied by the Roman Empire. And within the Roman Empire, there were people of all kinds of religions and all kinds of beliefs about God and all kinds of perspectives on what truth is. And sort of, sort of the, the, the governing rule of living in that type of society was that you can believe whatever you want to be true. You can believe whatever you want about God as long as your belief does not infringe upon somebody else's belief or somebody else's right to believe what they believe about God. And so there was this, there was this idea of uh, uh, there are all kinds of what you might call truths out there. There are all kinds of different perspectives on what is true. And the main thing is just that you let everybody believe what they want to believe. And don't insist upon everybody believing what you believe. And in addition to that, within the Roman Empire... Everybody was required to believe in the Roman Empire. And oftentimes, throughout some of these generations, in the deity of the Roman emperor himself. And so, hey, believe whatever you want about God. Just, just make sure your loyalty is to the emperor and your loyalty is to the Roman Empire. Don't let your faith infringe upon that and don't let your faith infringe upon somebody else's right to believe what they believe to be true about God. It's in that context that Jesus comes to reveal truth. There's an interesting thing that happens in about a a chapter and a half from where we're at today. I don't like to jump ahead too much when we're preaching through a book because I'm stealing from something that I need to preach later on. So I'm going to try to be careful and and, and use... um, Just stay reserved in how far we go with this. But look at John chapter 18 for a second. If you look at John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38, Jesus has now been arrested. He's, he's standing before Pilate. Pilate's sort of been given authority. So within the land of Israel there in the Roman Empire, you have, you have Jewish leaders who have been given a certain amount of governing authority over their people. But then over them are Roman leaders who have an even higher authority over them. And so as long as the Jewish leaders aren't doing anything that bothers the Roman leaders, then the Roman leaders are content for the most part to sort of stay out of it and let them sort of govern themselves. But then every now and then the the Roman leaders have to step in and assert their authority over the Jewish leaders. We see that in the trial of Jesus. The Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. They They literally want to crucify him. They want him dead. In order for them to do that, they have to, in a sense, have the permission of the Roman governor that's over them. And so they involve Pilate. He's he's the one that has authority to either grant them permission to have Jesus put to death or to deny them that permission. So they've brought Jesus before Pilate. And here's a conversation that happens between Jesus and Pilate, starting in verse 33. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation 
and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. What is truth? If Jesus came to reveal truth, then what is truth? Well, I mean by the simplest definition, truth is the reality of what is. Truth is, is, is perhaps a summation of the things that, that actually are. But what do you do when there's different opinions or different perspectives on what, what that is? On what is real and on what is true. Pilate is used to religious zealots getting all excited and wanting to do something wild and crazy uh, because of their religious beliefs. And it's his job to make sure that nobody gets too overly zealous that they do something that causes a problem within the Roman Empire. So he's heard these claims to ultimate truth probably more than once. And so when Jesus says, I've come to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Pilate seems to shrug that off. Truth. What's truth? You notice the conversation ends there. And if for you and I, if we're, if we're reading through the Gospel of John the way John would have expected us to, it would have been just a few minutes earlier that we would have read in John chapter 14 where, where Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so when we hear Pilate, here's Pilate, an unbeliever. Here's Pilate, somebody who, who needs to be saved by Jesus. And so we, as, as Christian readers, we hear this. We're like, man, if Pilate, Pilate, if Pilate got saved, imagine how this story is going to change. If you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, is Pilate going to embrace the truth? Is he going to, to trust in Jesus? And what is that going to mean for everybody else? If the governor, if, if one of the leaders becomes a, a Christ follower, the impact that that would have. And so when Pilate says, what is truth? We should, we should be jumping out of our seats going, tell him, Jesus. Tell him. Tell him that you're the truth. Tell him that you have been sent by the Father. Tell him what truth is, that truth is you, and that you are truth. You are the ultimate reality. You are the ultimate expression of anything that is. That apart from you, there is no truth. And that all truth comes from you. But Jesus doesn't tell him. And that's one of the things maybe that bothers us about Jesus <laughs> is he seems a little too content at times to just let the chips fall where they may. 
We even see this with his disciples. You know, when Jesus gathers his disciples, he doesn't, he doesn't sit them all down in the classroom and get in front of the chalkboard and on day one, write on the chalkboard, what is truth? Point one, God. Now he invites them into, into his life. He calls them to follow him. And as they're following him, he starts to do miraculous things. And he starts to make bold claims. And he starts to, to he, he just gradually starts to reveal himself to them until he gets to this, this last day before he goes to the cross. And he says, by the way, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. No one's getting to the Father unless they come through me. It's that slow, painful, gradual revelation of truth that causes so much angst. Nonetheless, Jesus came to reveal the truth. He came so that we might know. He came so that we might experience truth, that we might embrace truth, that we might be confident of truth. It's one of the reasons he came. He makes known to us what is true. He makes known to us what is real, what is reality. But that's not the only reason he came. If you have your handout still in front of you there, first he came to reveal the truth. The next thing on the handout is this, that Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father. He came to reconcile us to the Father. This is one of those things that we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Let's call this part A. We're going to talk about this a little bit more on Friday night um, as as we get into Jesus' prayer for himself and what it means to what it means for Jesus to put us back into a right relationship. But let's touch on it a little bit here this morning. It's, it's worth looking at. In verse 26, Jesus said, On that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that, that I came from God. And I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So one of the things that Jesus makes clear here is that as he's leaving, he's leaving to do something that puts them back into a proper, right relationship with, with the Father. Now, why do they need to put back into that relationship with the Father? Well, that's, that's an important question to ask and to understand the answer to. In the beginning, when God created man and woman, he created them for his glory. He created them in his image. He created them to have relationship with them. And that's exactly what he had. Before you and I were born, a long time ago, that men and women lived, or at least one man and one woman lived in a perfect, harmonious relationship with God. This is the picture we have in Genesis of the Garden of Eden. That, that God was free to come into, and, and, and dwell with people. And they enjoyed his presence. And they had a, a, a perfectly harmonious relationship with him. But then sin happened. And when sin happened, it broke that relationship. It broke that relationship in, in every significant way possible. First of all, just as, as God said, he said, if you, eat, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. When, as soon as they ate of the fruit of that tree, they were cut off from the source of eternal life. 
They were cut off from the, the life that God was, was, was transposing into them and, and keeping them alive. And they began the process of dying. And they began the process of physical death, which would take many years to come to com- completion. But they also, more significantly, en- entered into this, this state of spiritual death by which they no longer enjoyed a perfect, harmonious relationship with their creator. And some of the impacts for that was, first of all, they immediately felt shame. They felt shame with each other, something they had never felt before, and so they covered themselves up. But then they also felt shame before God, and so that, so that the next time that God came to be with them and to spend time with them, they actually hid from him, something they had never done before. And so, and then we see, we see the impact of that is that for, throughout the rest of human history, up until the time when, in the future, when Jesus will come back and restore, restore the earth back to its intended glory and restore human relationship with, with God back to its intended state. But for every human being that lived from Adam and Eve until the very end, we live in this broken relationship with God. We're separated from him. We're separated from our creator. We're separated from the father. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's coming to, to take the, these who have, who have been broken and separated from one another, and he's bringing us back together. How do we know this? What does this passage say about any of that? Let me show you. In verse 26, he says, On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So what Jesus is saying is that you're going back to that reconciled, that harmonious relationship with God, wherein which you now talk to him. You no longer, you know, when, when people aren't getting along, they often invite somebody into the middle to relay messages back and forth. They, they need a mediator. They need somebody in between them. They don't speak directly to one another. They speak through somebody else. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to be the mediator that brings you back together. You don't, you don't need to ask me to ask the Father. You ask him for yourself because he's reconciled us back to the Father. All right, more to come on that on Friday evening. But it was important, I thought that we didn't skip over that in this passage, that Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father. Two more things. Two more things that Jesus came to do. First, he came to reveal truth. Second, he came to reconcile us to the Father. Third, Jesus came for those who are not worthy of him. He came for those who are not worthy of him. We're going to look at verse 31. This is one of the things I just loved when I started preparing uh, to, to preach this passage. I loved what I saw in verses 31 through 32. Jesus responded to them. Now, I, I guess I should have included 30 because what he's responding to is that they had just said to him, now you're speaking plainly to us. You're not using figurative language. Remember, Jesus was speaking, and like he was talking about the vine, and he did the whole thing with washing their feet, and talked about why. You know, he's using all this figurative language that they're not always picking up on. But now you're speaking plainly, 
We know that we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. They're basically saying to Jesus, we figured it out. We're there. We're good now. We got it. And Jesus responded to them, oh, do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home. And you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus is foretelling what's about to happen in literally just a few short hours. That every last one of them, these men who, who just moments ago swore their allegiance to him. Who just, just earlier in the evening said that, remember Peter? He's like, Jesus, I'll die before I disown you. I'll die before I leave you. I got your back, whatever. I don't care if the whole Roman Empire is coming. Jesus is, or Peter's ready to die for Jesus. Jesus says, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. They will turn their backs on Jesus. They will fail. They will fail themselves. They will fail their their brotherhood. But most of all, they will fail their Savior. They will prove that they are not worthy of him. There will be no doubt in anyone's mind in that hour that these men do not deserve what Jesus is about to do for them. Why is that significant for us? It's significant for us because we are them. It's significant for us because we are the same. It's significant for us because Jesus came only for those who are not worthy of him. Someone who's worthy of him, someone who has lived up to the standard that that he has set from the beginning would not need him to come. You would be able to stand on your own merit. You would be able to stand on, uh, based on your own deeds before God. But he came for those who are not worthy. He came for those who couldn't do it themselves. He came for those who would fail him again and again and again. And this isn't the last time they'll do this. This isn't the last time they'll fail. This isn't the last time they'll let him down, they'll let themselves down, they'll let the people around them down. They are and will continue to be not worthy of him. And the good news for us is those are the people he came for. He actually, throughout his ministry, contrasts people like this with people who who believe that they are worthy of him. One of the interesting things about Jesus' ministry is his response to the, the religious people, even the religious leaders, the people who you would expect that he would come and be like, hey, those are my people. They've been serving me. They've dedicated their lives to religious service. They, they're, they're my people. One of the, but one of the surprising things in Jesus' ministry is that those are the people that he actually rejects and has the harshest words of judgment towards. We see this all throughout Jesus' ministry, but one of the places where I think it's most memorable and most, most helpful for what we're talking about here today is in, in Mark chapter 2, 
You don't even need to turn there. I'll just, I'll just read it for the sake of time because I'm just going to read three verses. In Mark chapter 2, again, this is early on in Jesus' ministry, starting in verse 15. It says, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. The scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so there's a cultural thing that's happening. Those who who are really devoted to following and obeying God, those who, who really want their lives to be pleasing to him, made it a point not to associate on such a, such a, a, a relational level uh, with people like tax collectors and sinners. I don't know if we have any tax collectors here. There was actually one in the first service. Tax collectors today aren't notably evil people. They're generally good people that their community has placed a lot of trust in. But back then it was the opposite. Back then it was, it was mostly Jewish people who were hired by the Roman government to collect let's say, um, heavy taxes on the Jewish people and, and give that money back to Rome. And then they, on top of that, on top of collecting money for uh, the Roman Empire from the poor Jewish people, they would often collect extra because any extra that they collected, they were able to keep for themselves. And so there's sort of like culturally the epitome of a Jewish sinner. These are are very hated people. And here's Jesus hanging out in one of their homes, eating with them like that's okay. Like it's just okay to be with people like this. And so the, the question comes from the religious people, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for the tax collectors and sinners. He came for the worst of the worst. He came for the broken, the downtrodden. He didn't come for people who think they have it all together. Those are the ones he rejects. There's nothing to offer them except for judgment. Harsh words of criticism. He doesn't offer them grace. He wants wants to break their high view of self. But to those who are already broken, he comes with mercy and grace. When I started out in ministry, I was a youth pastor for several years. I loved doing youth ministry. Still love youth ministry. Um, But I did that for several years. And uh, I did it in a church where there was a lot of, uh, well, like any, probably like any youth ministry, there's a lot of church kids that come who grew up in the church and they know the right things. They're not necessarily, you know, inwardly any better than anybody else, but they know how to play along, you know, they know how to do the things. And, uh, you know, there were some homeschool kids that lived in that, that little Christian bubble that their parents created for them. And there were some Christian school kids and, and there was kind of like developing this culture of, uh, the, uh, uh I don't know to say it too harshly, but you know, just we're, we're the good ones. We're the good kids. 
And then we started to reach some kids that, that didn't fit into that mold, some kids that were coming in, even some kids off the streets and stuff who were coming in, and their lives were broken, and they didn't try to hide it. They flaunted it. It was like a badge of honor for them, how broken their lives were. And I could see our, I could see our Christian kids, our church kids responding. And I remember I, I didn't like the way they were responding. They were like, what are they doing here? And I had some experiences like that um, when I became a Christian as a teenager too where uh, I showed up to church one time and this girl from my school was like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I don't know, what are you doing here? <laughs> but I remember getting this, opening to this passage and preaching from this text of Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And I remember telling those, those young Christians and those, those young people, we eat with tax collectors and sinners. We're not gonna be some Christian clique, you know, that doesn't, welcome broken people who think we have it all together. That's ridiculous. That's not who we are. That's not even reality. We want to be, we, we're here for the sick. We're here for the broken. We're here for those who are in need of a savior. Those are the ones that Jesus came for. I remember this one young man, he, he was, I'm not going to use his name, just, just not going to use his name today, but, um, he was one of the kids that just like really freaked everybody out because he would just, he didn't know how to play church. He had, he didn't know what playing church even looked like. And she, he would show up and he would just say honest, raw, off the wall things. And all the church kids are like, you can't say that here. You know, he freak everybody out. Um, but man, I loved this kid and I loved what God was doing in his life. And he came from such a broken home. I mean, everything about his life was just in shambles. He had one thing going for him. He had a grandma that loved him. That was it. Everything else around him was just chaos and, and brokenness. And he would, he would come in and out. He'd disappear sometimes, and then he'd come back. But he, uh, I built a good relationship with him, and he'd, he'd stay in touch with me, and he'd call me sometimes. And uh, he'd be like, he would just literally just say, like, hey, can you come pick me up? Can we just hang out? And we'd just drive around um, and talk and stuff. He'd call me sometimes. He literally, like, just got home from, I mean, this kid was addicted to hardcore drugs. Not, like, smoked a little bit of weed and drank booze on the weekends. Like, addicted to hardcore drugs, like meth and heroin and stuff. And he, he'd call me after, like, coming back from like a two or three day bender where he was just getting high, you know, and the drugs were on out and you got to go back home and you got to figure out what you're going to do next. And, and, and we just hang out sometimes when he was coming down out of that. And, um, I remember like opportunities, like giving him a Bible, giving him the, the word of God and just pouring into his life any way that I could. And then one day when I think he was 18, his grandma called me and she woke up that morning and she found him dead on the living room floor with a needle hanging out of his arm. And, uh, man, you just think, you just think about all the opportunities that we have to keep people on the outside because of maybe the way they are on the outside. <laughs> and, and, and then we, we come face to face with the way Jesus did his ministry. And Jesus, he came for kids like that. He came for people like that. He came for people who knew they didn't have it all together. And I don't, you know, there were, there were evidences, though he didn't break that addiction to drugs, there were evidences that he had truly trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior. So I have that hope that, that he has eternal life now. Um, 
though I don't have access to the records. I don't know. Um, but I remember coming across a Bible that he had that had things highlighted in it. And uh, he was put in placement one time and somebody gave him a Bible there. And, and, you know, just some of the things that meant something to him at one point, meant something to him in some of his darkest hours. I say all that just as an example of why Jesus came. He didn't come to be the leader of the religious people. He rejected the religious people. He came for those who are not worthy of him. And it started with his closest disciples. He didn't go, he didn't go into the synagogues and say, who's your brightest student? I'm going to invite them to be my followers. He went and he found tax collectors and fishermen. And he found, he found people that the religious world had passed up. And he invited them to be his followers. And, and they couldn't even do that right. They, they messed up in so many ways. Here Jesus Jesus, after everything he's done and after everything he's poured into them, he's going to go to the cross alone because every one of them is going to deny that they even knew him. And yet that's who he came for. Even then, he knew why he was doing this. He was doing this for them to save them. He came for those who are not worthy of him. Just People just like you and I. Then finally, I'll do this one quickly because we're running out of time. The last reason that I want to address here that Jesus came is that Jesus came to give peace to sufferers in this world. He came to give peace to sufferers of this world. This is how Jesus ends his final talk to his disciples. Verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. That's what he ends with. I told you these things to prepare you. It's not going to be easy. Life's not going to go well. (laughs) You're going to face trouble. You're going to suffer. Some of that is going to be because you're my followers. He said a little bit earlier, they're going to hate you because they hated me. Some of that is going to be just because you live in a broken world and there's suffering here and people get sick and people die. You're going to have to go through Christmases without some of the people that you love the most. You're going to suffer. But I've told you this in advance. I've told you this before it happens. I've told you this. I've told you that they'll reject you on account of me. I told you that they'll hate you because you follow me. I told you this so that you may have peace. Peace doesn't come from the absence of troubles. It comes from having a Savior who has conquered this world. Peace doesn't come by having everything go your way. Peace comes by having Jesus with you when it's not going well. That's where peace comes from. And then Jesus says that our response to that peace, the peace that he came to give us, is to be courageous in the face of the suffering that we face in this world. 
So he tells us in advance, hey, might want to put a helmet on. It's going to be tough. You should be ready. Things aren't going to go the way you hope they go. Some of your greatest fears are going to come true. People are going to reject you. People aren't going to like that you're claiming to follow exclusive, absolute truth. And on top of that, the hardships of this world. It's tough to live here. It's tough to be alive. But I'm telling you this so you have peace. So be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Don't give up hope. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Jesus came to give peace to sufferers in this world. Sufferers like you and I. He came that we might have peace in him. He came to reveal the truth. That's one of the reasons that he came. He came to reconcile us back to the Father so that we'd get back to that relationship that he intended for us when he created us. He came for those who are not worthy of him. And he came to give us peace. So be courageous.